Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 210. So glad you could join me. Today's guest, Lana Hechtman Ayers, is here. She'll be with us in about 10 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. Uh, we just do it because you love poetry, and I know you do too. So please do click the like button and share. Make sure you subscribe, ring the bell for notifications. And I'm trying to boost our iTunes traffic. There's some analytics I could finally see, um, and uh, it could be better. So let's get more reviews. Even if you're just watching this on YouTube, if you could go, if you have an iTunes account, go to iTunes and leave a review. Just give it a couple stars. Say it's a good show. Um, I switched around some of the keywords, hoping to like get more foot traffic on uh, an iTunes. So that's a goal coming up, and we'll see if you can help us out by leaving a review because it's really helpful. Um, you know, we get about the Rattlecast is spread all over the place. It's on Spotify, it's on iTunes, it's on Amazon, it's on um, you know YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, and there's like you know several hundred people on each platform. Um, be nice to grow. I haven't really focused on on uh, certain podcast venues, so it's be nice to grow some of those. Um, and iTunes is the best. Now to start out like we always do, we have. Um, the Poets Respond Poet from Sunday. And Kelly Grace Thomas is here from the road in a car on the I-15 freeway uh, to talk about her poem that we featured on Sunday. Hi, Kelly. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Can you all hear me okay? We can. It's great. It's so cool that you could stop in the, the internet, you know, works on the, in the middle of the freeway. We can see the car, you know, driving in the background, uh, beating feet out of L.A. <laughs> you definitely got to get out of L.A. And uh, it's good to see that you're making your way back up to the Bay Area. Um, but you had this poem that was so moving. Um, there were a lot of poems this week um, about uh, Jimmy Buffett passing away. Um, you know, it was one of the prime topics. Probably a third of the poems were written about that. And, um, and, and it's always interesting when a celebrity dies to see, you know, especially someone that I personally don't have any relationship with. I mean, I know Margaritaville, that's about it. And so to see all the ways that certain people connect um, with with um, with people around the world and, and how how much their lives mean, you know, and have connections, you know, personal connections. And that's what your poem is really about. Do you want to explain, you know, why what Jimmy Buffett meant to you and, and why you wrote a poem about it? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, I grew up sailing a lot on my dad's sailboat and. You know, there's really nothing to do on the water but stare at the ocean um, and listen to music. And Jimmy Buffett was really the first poet I learned to read that my father would say, like, that's a beautiful line. Um, and like, I would be like, yes, absolutely it is beautiful. And he'd say, like, now tell me why. Um, so a lot of like my early teachings and what poetry was and what music and what sound was, um, was really from Jimmy Buffett. There's also like Jimmy Buffett really, he gives the people like this feeling that summer's never over, that there's always hope. There's always another party coming. There's always a joke to laugh at, even if at your own expense. So I think that a lot of times, especially when things were hard in my family, not only did he provide art, but he provided like this solace of um, like warmth and just like, you know, easy breezy summer days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, well, I just want to go ahead and uh, and read the poem right now, if you if you don't mind. Uh, can you see it from your your car? Yeah, I'm all set up. Thanks. Okay. Um, the title of the poem is "Mother, Mother Ocean," uh, and the, it's taken from it's a lyric from a Jimmy Buffett song called "A Pirate Looks at Forty. Mother, Mother Ocean. Summer never ends without taking. 
the basil gone to seed, wildfires swallow the coast. The morning after Jimmy Buffett dies, my father says, long live the music. It's 6 a.m. and I'm crying at the coffee maker again. The last days of summer have already taken my mother. We sang Florida days at sunset to send her off. I can still see before the cancer, before California, after the bankruptcy took everything but the boat. We sailed south, wind strumming the sails, Jimmy on the speakers, looking for better days, blue skies and ultraviolet rays. My mother leaning against the hull, two small children and a future too heavy to float. There is an ocean or family without Jimmy, his watery twang. Even after the record ends, there is still music, a sea of stingless salt, a mother singing. And that was, of course, Kelly Grace Thomas reading Mother, Mother Ocean, the poetry Bond poet from uh, this Sunday. And, and, you know, it was interesting, too. I, you know, Jimmy Buffett as a poet is something people, you know, came to a lot. So it's interesting to hear he was one of the first poets that really meant something to you. Um, and, and it's really just interesting how, um, you know, it makes me want to go back and, and look at his poems, you know, or his songs as poems, I guess you could say. Well, very cool. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Kelly. Just a great poem, a very moving and meant a lot to a lot of people this week. And it's always a pleasure seeing you. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, Alana Hexman Ayers. So sit tight and we'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Like I said, today's guest is Lana Heckman Ayers. Uh, she's the managing editor of three poetry presses, Concrete Wolf Poetry Series, Moonpath Press, and World Enough Writers. Uh, she facilitates general, generative writing workshops in the Amherst Method, which is something I want to talk about. Uh, runs a poetry book club, helps other poets assemble manuscripts. Um, she has a, a Poem of the Day newsletter. Um, she has so much. She teaches at writers' conferences as well. She's the author of eight poetry collections, two of which have come out in 2023, Overture and When All Else Fails. So we'll be talking about those two last books. She's got another one, her ninth, coming out um, in the spring. And we got one poem um, from there to start with, I think, too. That's the Autobiography of Rain. That's coming out in the spring. But we'll get a preview of that. Uh, but here she is, Lana Hexman Ayers. Hey, Lana, how are you? I'm great, Tim. I am so delighted to be here. Yeah, Thank I'm so glad so to much. have you as a guest. I've, you know, I've known and, and your name has been familiar to me for so long with all the things you do in publishing. And then, you know, we started publishing a few years ago. and It's great to finally uh, meet you. I don't think we've met, ran into each other in person before. Um, it's always really cool to meet poets whose names are, are super familiar so I can uh, put a face to the name and, and a personality, too. Uh, it's great to have you on. And it is 9-11. Um, of course, it's the 9-11, you know, September 11th show, um, the anniversary of that day. I had a, the Patriots Day um, ceremony at my daughter's school. She's in the choir, so she sang all those songs. And um, and you have, you know, a special connection to September 11th, a sad one, um, and a poem about it. Do you want to explain uh, what the poem's about and, and, and what happened? Sure. So my older brother... Alan was a Red Cross volunteer and a trained EMT. And as fate, beautiful and horrible as fate is, would have it. Um, my brother who lived, I don't know if you know a lot about New York City, but 
Sometimes when people live in Long Island, they don't go to Manhattan very much. <laughs> My brother was uh, somebody that lived on Long Island, worked on Long Island, very rarely ever went into Manhattan. But on September 11th, he had a meeting in building number four of the World Trade Center for his job, uh, which was an electrical engineer. That's what he did by profession. Um, and when the after the plane struck the towers, uh, the people in his building didn't want to let anyone go out because they didn't know what, you know, what kind of havoc they were releasing people into. But the building number four was filling up with smoke as well. And my brother knew we got to get out of here. And he was instrumental in uh, letting the people that ran the building know we've got to get out. We've got to get these people out. Now, building four was a, a smaller office building, but it did end up collapsing as well. Oh, wow. So he was instrumental in that. And because he was a trained EMT and a Red Cross volunteer, he stayed and stayed the entire day and helped with saving lives and clearing people out of the wreckage. And um, he ended up having to walk home through Queens and get a ride. Uh, but uh, it, it was a really, a really rough day. And I heard from him in the middle, almost in the middle of the night, because I didn't even know he was in Manhattan. So when we all saw the news on TV, I never thought my brother yeah, that's what, uh, that's what I was thinking. Like, it's uh, fortunate not to even know to be that worried, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, um, you know, many of the rescuers there came down with illnesses. And my brother ended up with a very rare form of leukemia about eight years later, which is related to the exposure of the burning jet fuel. It's related to toxin exposure. Mm -hmm. And um, he fought the good fight, but ultimately succumbed. Yeah. So this poem um, is actually after another poet's poem. Marie Howe has a poem called What the Living Do, which is about her brother who committed suicide. But it's a beautiful and moving poem. And it sort of gave me a way to shape what I wanted to say to my brother. And this poem was written at the beginning of the pandemic because um, I just thought of him and I thought he would have been here to help. He could have been here to help if he mm -hmm. if he only lived. So this poem is called What the Sheltering Do. Brother, my freezer, Arctic, resembles the old snow forts we built in childhood. And hot water does no good, making a flood and more ice. There is no repairman to call in this time of sheltering in place. This isn't the everyday we dreamed of. For weeks now, staring at faces on screens, TV, phone, laptop, I'm recalling being seated across from you at the coffee shop, your hair gleaming in a shaft of sun, your laughter cutting through the din of conversation piped in and piped in tunes. I stay home now to make my own brew. This is what those of us do who want to live. We cleave in place, cleave from one another to flatten the curve. This is how the ordinary serve. I didn't want you to leave that fateful day or ever. It's nearly spring here, bright with bloom, pink blossoms and green leaves erasing all memory of winter's blahs and grays. But winter's cold remains. My heater believes the calendar that proclaims spring and refuses to come up. 
I shiver, wearing several sweaters, no repairman to call. Turnips are all I eat for the fifth night this week because the market is out of everything. And facial tissues are what I use as toilet paper. This is what those of us who want to live do. You had no choice in being here or not. Terrorist disease took you from us. This is not the everyday we dreamed of. True, mine are ordinary griefs, broken appliances, whatever the store is out of each time. But as my washing machine refuses to spin, I'm gripped with a sadness so deep for what might have been if you hadn't left us before this global pandemic. You who manned the front lines on 9-11 saving lives. Despite the new great losses your heart would endure, you'd rescue so many more. You, brother, would as surely be hero now as then. I honor you. I will always honor you. Yeah, that's such a beautiful and heartbreaking poem and story. What the Sheltering Do from Lana Heckman Ayers. Um, and that's um, from Lana's forthcoming book, uh, which is out in the fall, um, The Autobiography of Rain. I mean, the spring, I should say. But um, um, 2024, the fall of 2024. Oh, fall of 2024. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> fall of 2024. Yeah, the Autobiography of Rain. So, um, yeah, but a beautiful poem and, and such, a, such a difficult thing to go through. And I imagine, you know, writing a poem like that helps, right? Uh, make it through the emotions and the feelings um, that, are, that are sort of bottled up inside, right? And it, was there a release into being able to write that? Yes, I mean, it, I really just kind of wanted to talk to him, you know, and it, it made it easier to do it on paper. Mm-hmm. It made it easier to feel like, well, this is how I communicate. This is my mode of, of reaching out is trying to make poetry. And so, yeah, it, and it does help to feel like, you know, maybe, maybe there's an ear somewhere across the galaxy and he can hear. Yeah. Well, um, um, you know, I know we were going to talk about uh, Patricia Fagnoli, your mentor, um, and I'm interested in uh, always in how poets came to be poets. It's always a curious thing to me, you know, how it mm-hmm. happens and how did you um, end up even, you know, seeking a mentor in the first place? What was your introduction to poetry? How did you, how did you find yourself on this path? Well, it's another kind of strange occurrence, I guess you'd say. Fate had a hand in that as well. Um, my, my father. Um, had been in the Navy and done work in the shipyard in Brooklyn. However, that closed. And after the Brooklyn shipyard closed, he had a hard time finding jobs and was out of work from time to time. And we needed charity to help us keep going. Um, And one of the charity sacks that we got from a local church had had clothing in it and was left in our, we had a basement, it was left in the basement. And I was down there kind of, you know, butzing around. And lo and behold, there were poetry books at the bottom of this bag that had held clothing. I was about five or six years old, mind you. <laughs> um, the books uh, were by Rudyard Kipling. Mm-hmm. And I could read, actually, thanks to the fact that my next door neighbor, who was five years older than me, every day when she came home from school, she set up a little board in her basement and taught me her lessons. 
And so I was reading at, you know, a 10-year-old or 11-year-old level when I was five because she was my teacher. And so I got the books out of the bag and I started to read these poems. I didn't know they were poems, but I started to read these these poems aloud. And um, there was a magic that happened just listening to the music of them. It felt like they were magic spells, some kind of incantations. And I don't think I really understood the poems so much as felt something really special about them. Now, I, I had a very difficult and kind of harrowing childhood because my mother was mentally ill. Although to me, she was just my mom. I didn't know until much later in life that that this was a mental illness. Um, I just thought I'm a bad kid and I can't do anything right. And I deserve whatever comes to me. But um, poetry kind of kind of just spoke to me of, of something other. And I can't even quite put it into words how I knew at five or six years old that this was something that was eventually from that moment on going to really not only make my life more livable, but save my life. Mm-hmm. It really did save my life. Um, because if I would go on to keep reading other poets and understand that there were people out there who had suffered terrible things and not only survived but thrived and if they could do it i could do it too yeah that's a really really powerful message too and a great story for finding poems for the first time and then you you uh you mentioned that you were a a mathematics major uh as an (laughs) undergraduate so how did you get you know and then you have a a sci-fi streak as well and wrote a time traveling romance novel which i hadn't heard of um and and that's really interesting so so how did you uh why was it why was math a, a direction that you went okay so even though i was great at reading um, I was still a very stupid 62. <laughs> I wanted, and you know, I was really into poetry. I had begun writing my own poems, you know, as soon as I could hold a crayon. Um, and I kind of knew that I wanted to pursue poetry, but I had skipped a few grades and I, I was 16 when I graduated high school, ready to go to college, but not very bright because I wanted to go to Beloit, to Beloit University in Wisconsin because that's originally where Beloit Magazine was. And I thought that's the best program for a poet to go to. And unfortunately, even though I had a scholarship, I couldn't afford the dorm. Mm-hmm. I didn't have <laughs> and it, I couldn't afford the books. I couldn't afford anything else. And um, uh, my mother had spent what little money had been given to me for college to put Formica on the kitchen cabinets. But that's another story. So I thought if I can't go to Beloit to study poetry, there's no other college in the world good enough for studying poetry there just isn't i was 16 and stupid i think my grandpa used to say cut off your nose to spite your face well that's what i did maybe stubborn (laughs) well i i was good at math i actually Mm -hmm. my father was good at math my mother was good at math i kind of inherited their math ability and it seems like i'll just be a math major it's easy and i went to the city university of newark at queen's college because it was local and it was free (laughs) and i also had this you know scholarship and i so i actually got paid you know 250 dollars a year to go to college because i had a little scholarship money so it was extra Mm -hmm. um and i was a math major there which is really stupid because they had a great english department uh, Maria Ponti, the poet, was there. I mean, there were some great poets there, and I just ignored it mm-hmm. because I was I was kind of you know stubborn and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that's interesting. An interesting background and a great, great, maybe a cautionary tale for people. Although, I mean, you, you ended out up all right, I'd have to say, um, as far as the poetry goes, for sure. Um, and then so somehow, um, you, you know, you became really close to Patricia Fagnola, who you talked about. And you wanted to share a poem of her. She was your mentor. How did you yeah. end up meeting Pat? And, and what did she mean to you? Um, well, I had met Pat um, in New Hampshire when I was living in New Hampshire. I had gone to her readings. She had read at various local places, and I just was in love with her poetry. And I found out that she ran poetry workshops in Keene, New Hampshire, which was two hours from where I was living. But I was going to get on the road and go to because she was an amazing poet. Um, and that's how I met her. She's actually, I guess you'd say my second poetry mentor. Um and uh, she just took me under her wing. She told me that I should be sending poems out into the world. And I never thought I should be doing that. I never thought I, you know, I, I was good enough to do that. And she really encouraged me. And she, I also kind of wanted to go to an MFA. And she said, you know, I didn't need an MFA, but if you if that will make you feel like you're less of a fraud, because I felt like a fraud and I still do a lot of the time, then that's what you should do. And she said, I'll write your recommendation. And so I got an MFA because of Pat. And um, during my time in the in the program, she said, you know, you're going to put together a book and you're going to send that book out. And I said, I'm not so sure about that. I'm going to the MFA because you know, I've been writing poetry on my own since childhood in a vacuum. I've just been going to the library, picking poets off the shelves that I find I like and enjoy. And I don't really know anything about poetry. <laughs> I just know what I like. So I wanted to do the MFA to figure out the history of poetry, the history of poetry in the United States, to figure out, you know, what the different kinds of poetry were what am i writing into you know what am i speaking to as as adding my voice to theirs and just learning all about it and that's what i got out of my mfa i went there for that and i really feel like i got the education i needed to understand what poetry really was mm -hmm. it wasn't just the poems i like it was something bigger and grander and um a tradition for thousands of years and i needed to know that mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's sh share this poem that you wanted to uh, Roof Men uh, by Patricia. And this is from her first book, which came out when she was in her 60s. It won the May Sarton Prize, judged by Mary Oliver. Um, and it's one of my favorite poems. It remains one of my favorite poems of hers. The title of the book is Necessary Light, and that title occurs in the poem. Roof Men by Patricia Farknoli. Over my head, the roof men are banging shingles into place. And over them, the sky shines with a light that is almost past autumn and bright as copper foil. In the end, I will have something to show for their hard labor. Unflappable shingles, dry ceilings, one more measure of things held safely in a world where safety is impossible. In another state, a friend tries to keep on living, though his arteries are clogged, though the operation left a 10-inch scar. And near his intestines, an aneurysm blossoms like a deformed flower. His knees and feet burn with constant pain. We go on. I don't know how sometimes. 
For a living, I listen eight hours a day to the voices of the anxious and the sad. I watch their beautiful faces for some sign that life is more than disaster. It is always there. The spirit behind the suffering, the small light that gathers the soul and holds it, beyond the sacrifices of the body, necessary light. I bend toward it and blow gently. And those hammerers above me bend into the dailiness of their labor beneath concentric circles, a roof of sky, beneath the roof of the universe, beneath what vaults over it. And don't those journeymen hold a piece of the answer? The way they go on, layering one gray speckled square after another, nailing each down firmly, securely. Yeah, beautiful metaphor uh, for life and a great poem by Patricia Fagnoli. That was Roof Men, of course, from her uh, uh, one of her early books. Um, and so what was it about that poem that you learned and incorporated in your own poetry? Because I can kind of hear your voice a little bit in there, too. There's a, there's some things you have in common. So what is it that you took away from Patricia and her poems that, that you use yourself? Well, one of the things about her poetry is she always was a keen observer of the world around her. And she could see the connectedness to everything, you know, that that these roof men are also leaning into the dailiness of their lives and they're making something beautiful. It may only be a roof, but it's an important thing and it's beautiful and it matters in the scheme of things. And so, you know, just to see things, not only um, what's around you, but how what's around you is really intricately involved in everyone else's lives in some way. In some way, we're all connected. And that's what I took from her. And I, I hope that that comes across in some of my poems. And it's a huge compliment to say that you hear her in me. Well, that's the thing that, that I do here is that there's a sense of, um, you know, I mean, you're characterized as a poet who writes about grief a lot. And, and there's a way that um, grief is sort of a, a way um, to frame gratitude and appreciation. You know, and so there's that the interplay of those two things of noticing and paying attention to things um, to, um, you know, find consoling um, in the face of grief um, that sort of go through, you know, most of your work that I've read. And so there's that sense of, um, you know, just of, of almost a, a Buddhist nature of paying attention to the moment um, that, that shines through uh, both your works, I'd say. Oh, thank you. That's really great to hear. Yeah. And I think also that despite the pain that she refers to, you know, her friend who may not, who may not live and all the painful stories she listens to each day. She was a, a psychiatric social worker for the, for the town that she lived in. Um, that there's always, there's always some kernel of beauty and um, the ability to keep going. There's always something inside each person that can keep them from succumbing to suffering. It's always there. It's just a matter of how to nurture it. Yeah, for sure. And that's what that's what your poetry definitely does. Um, let's move on and share some poems from uh, your earlier book from this year. I mean, two books in a year is something to be proud of, for sure. This is one of All Else Fails that came out in the spring. And um, and you wanted to start out with uh, the poem from Rattle, summer issue, um, when, you, when You Say You're From New York City. Um, so definitely uh, uh, New Yorkers can relate to this poem, I'd say. <laughs> yes. Well, also, um, 
This is my first print poem in Rattle, so that was really exciting for me. And I have to say, Patricia Fargnoli is the one that turned me on to Rattle. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. She having been published in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think her poem was fun, if anyone wants to go back. Maybe we'll share it on the open lines if there's time later, too. Yeah. So this is when you say you're from New York City. The entire borough of Queens doesn't count, especially our sinkhole spot in the borough. No yellow cab traffic honks or women striding through streets in high-heeled pumps. Only roaring from Idlewild Airfield, practically at our back door. Rows of identical box houses built over swamps. Low-slung shops with parking lots the size of half a Manhattan block. And the oxymoronic elevated subway hurdling by, screeching brakes. Mother was the stay-at-home kind who'd rather be anywhere else, especially singing on the radio or starring in some pot boiler like the black and white movie star autographed photos framed on the walls, like relations we'd be the black sheep for. 5 a.m. every weekday, Daddy disappeared wearing army green coveralls, his nickname Mac, machine stitched into the bib center pocket. He returned home 12 hours later Knuckles calloused, smile askew, his eyes puddles reflecting overcast sky. I had a big brother with hands like those giant junkyard claws. Took, crushed, didn't matter whose or what. My tennis shoes too tight, big toe poking out like an earthworm, rain smothered out of his dirt home. Daddy's paycheck had as much stretch as a number two pencil. So we accepted food from the church pantry and the shame of walking 10 blocks home with charity sacks filled with unnatural orange cheese the size of a car battery, cans of green beans slimy as the slugs that infested the shrubbery, outside our brick front asbestos-sided ranch house, always a mortgage payment behind. Saturdays, Daddy mowed the three grass blades jutting out from the rowdy dandelions that stood in for lawn while mother escaped to some beauty shop for half the day, came back with a teased high dome of hair no robin would ever make her home. Once in a while, on a generous Sunday, there was Mickey D's for supper, one large order of fries split between the four of us. Rainy weekend nights drove us each to our own shadowy spiderwebbed corners of the house. Mine sitting atop moldering mismatched shoes in the damp hall closet. The scent of mothballs, a kind of anesthetic. But if the weather held, we torched marshmallows, no matter the season, in a rusted out charcoal grill behind the house in its gravel pit of a backyard swatting flies or mosquitoes or whatever was biting at us as something always was such was our glamorous new york city life and that was uh when you say you're from new york city uh from lana hexman Ayer's book when all else fails and um um <clears throat> so the, the details in that poem are so great. Um, earlier in the broadcast, you mentioned that there was more to poetry than you thought. Like, poetry was something more. 
Um, and can you explain, like, what did you mean? What did you find that, that poetry was? Uh, I think we've hinted at it a little bit, but can you explain what poetry actually is? Um, well, I mean, it, there's, it, it turns out that poetry has become kind of almost like a spiritual practice for me. It's how I seek to connect not only with the deepest part of myself, but how I try to fathom the world and all its mysteries and contradictions I mean, I don't really know exactly how I feel or what I think until I start writing things down. Um, and the other thing is, I feel like the poems themselves are my way to connect with this, you know, with with others. My way of saying, we're all in this together. We're more alike than we are different. And so that's kind of how it functions for me. I, you know, I sometimes say kindness is my religion, but Poetry is my spiritual practice. Um, and this is kind of, this kind of brings me to a really wonderful little story in that um, when this poem appeared in Rattle, um, someone reached out to me, found my website, found my contact link, and wrote to me. And that person turned out to be um, Arthur Russell, oh, who, mm-hmm. who won the... Uh, Chapa, the rattle chapa contest with, at the car wash and i don't know if you if you wouldn't if you wouldn't mind can i read your email um so i just thought it was the sweetest thing he said dear miss Ayers, i got my new rattle today and opened to the first poem yours which was fantastic i love the way you owned your place in queens and queens's place in you I'm from Brooklyn, so a different story, but I was nodding throughout, so thank you. If you have a mailing list, please put me on it. Best regards, Arthur Muscle. P.S. I won the 2023 Rattle Chapbook Prize, so my book at the car wash will be coming to you in September. (laughs) Well, first of all, what poet doesn't really, really feel so heartened by a message from a stranger who has read your poem and connected to it. We write in such a vacuum and we often think that maybe no one cares what we're doing. No one, it doesn't matter. But here's someone who's a complete stranger who looked me up and found my contact information and took the time it took to write me such a sweet, sweet note. And um, I looked Arthur up in return and found some of his poems and knew that he was a kindred spirit. And as, as fate once again takes a, a you know takes a little step in, um, I had a reading arranged with Open Books Seattle on Zoom, and I needed to find another poet whose collection was coming out at the same time of, as mine to invite as a co-reader. So I invited Arthur to read with me because our books were coming out together. And we ended up reading together for open books on this past Saturday. Um, And it was a wonderful reading. Arthur's poems are monumental. They're epic. They're wonderful. And I made the mistake of going second. So I'd have to follow all these monumental poems. (laughs) But it was just incredible. I mean, he's a terrific reader. I know you're having him on Rattlecast in a few weeks. All you guys have to tune in. The book is amazing. If some of you... um, are silly enough not to be Rattle subscribers and don't have a copy of it, contact Arthur to get a copy of it. It's just wonderful. Um, so poetry connects us to people we never expect to know. Poetry 
does confirm that we are all in this together, as I said. I mean, I just feel like it, it does matter that we put our work out there and it does matter if it touches someone else's lives. It brightens someone's day for a few moments or maybe they feel less alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Arthur book, I should say, is a book at the car wash is right here, the chat book. And if anybody you know wants to subscribe too, they get it if you subscribe right now and you don't subscribe and print to Rattle yet. And he's going to be the guest on uh, the Rattlecast October 2nd, so three weeks from now. Um, but, but that's just such a great point, though, about reaching out to people. You know, like having a note like that, and that's why in every issue of Rattle, we put people's um, either email address or website or whatever they have, some way of connecting them if they have one, um, into the back so people can reach out and, and share because it just means so much. I mean, it's not like anyone's going to get rich writing poems, but we do sort of get rich in spirit by having this connection that other people, you know, it is, we're living in a time, you know, even just having a conversation with, with a stranger is difficult. You know, I, I have the ex- experience um you know, with my kids at the playground and you start, sort of talk to the parents next to you. And it's so hard to break through that small talk of like the weather. And, you know, poets are people who get to break through. And uh, and so, you know, reaching out to a poet after you appreciate a poem um, just means so much. And so it's a great you know exercise to practice. And, and then great things come out of it, too, like these kind of connections. So it's a really cool story. And I'm looking forward to have Arthur. It's Arthur Russell. Somebody's asking in the comments, R-U-S-S-E-L-L. Um, but you'll get that if you have the chapbook, uh, which come with all subscriptions, too. Um, but let's let's read some more poems, uh, Lana. What what do you want to read next? I think we're, we're going to stick with uh, When All Else Fails, right? Okay. Yeah, I would like to read uh, I Never Thought to Lie Down with My Father. Okay. This was a poem that took me um, probably 20 years to write. It was a really tough one. I never thought to lie down with my father, but that July afternoon, I held him as one might a lover, his body half the weight it had been, all cancer. Sunbeam dust dancers through the transom, a fan fussed back and forth, billowing swampy air. My fingers grazed the prickly scar above his left ear, shadowy bristle, pretending hair might again grow there. Where once was muscle and sweat, folds of emptied flesh. The bed spreads embroidered roses, scentless imposters. I lay in my mother's place, face to face with daddy, shivery, cold, sobbing. I'm not ready to go. So much left. Everywhere he was fragile. My lips warmed his waxy skin. While a flip clock clicked softly from the bedstead, spun red lit rectangles of white numerals as if a train station timetable reporting departures, arrivals. Yeah, what a beautiful last image. It reminds me of uh, my grandmother's clock, too. Just brings me back to that. Um, a really touching poem, I Never Thought to Lie Down with My Father. Again, from When All Else Fails by Lana Hechtman Ayers. Um, and you mentioned that that poem took 20 years to write. Um, what was it uh, about, you know, what was it that took so long? Um, was it, you know, how did, what was the struggle? Well, just how to talk about this kind of intimacy with my father, you know, he was, he was a really kind of funny, funny man. You know, he probably was the person that invented the dad joke. Um, He, 
you know, he was a, a working guy. He wasn't he wasn't book educated really. He kind of probably was ditching school more than he was there playing playing basketball. <laughs> uh, um so we didn't have a lot to talk about when it came to poetry or books. But um, you know, he was always very supportive of me and very kind um to everyone he met and caring and the first person to pitch in if there was a problem with neighbors. Um so we didn't it wasn't really what I would call a closeness that I wanted and hoped for. And so this was a very strange kind of situation where my father was so weak and he would only have a couple months to live after this. Um and I just wanted to comfort him so badly and didn't know if I could, didn't know if it was allowed, mm -hmm. if I was allowed to provide this kind of physical comfort. Um, you know, we were, not, we were not very physically expressive family. There wasn't, you know, a lot of um, affection in public or behind closed doors. <laughs> um, but this was something I just really wanted to do. And I, I it was one of the, I guess the, the closest moments I ever felt to my dad mm -hmm. when I could just sit there and lie there with him and comfort him. And, um, you know, just, he was, he, he was in tears and I was just comforting him the best way that I knew how, and I didn't know how to express it. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to make it not sound, I don't know, lurid or weird or <laughs> to me, it was, it was such an, uh, you know, unusual thing to be able to have this kind of physical contact with my father and for it to be, you know, me comforting him as he's dying, really. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a really hard poem to write. And I wanted to do it in a way that would honor what happened and honor him. And it just took forever for me to be able to get the words on the page in a way that didn't seem inadequate or, yeah. I don't know. It was just really difficult. Yeah, well, it's one of the most important, you know, topics too. I think that's being written about right now because there's so many people, um, you know, because I read submissions and I see, you know, what everybody's struggling with, and there's so many people, you know, learning about and trying to figure out how to deal with uh, the end of their parents' lives because it's sort of the way that population demographics are going. There's a huge uh, percentage of people that are going through this right now, and we're in a society that we don't really talk about that or address it. We sort of like to pretend that death doesn't exist, or it's like um, you know video games where you pop right back up, or action movies, or you go off to heaven, and there's no real grappling with it. And so you mentioned poetry is a spiritual practice, and that's really the the point of spiritual practice is to find ways to deal with the the difficulties of life. And so finding a poem like this that helps people as a guide to to how to how to you know handle those end of moment times know that you're not alone in going through the struggles that we all are eventually um it's a really powerful thing to do and it seems like that ties right back into your um the, the purpose of poetry to you from the start was to ways to deal with that grief yes no that's true and i don't know i, I guess i just wanted wanted to express that it's okay to care mm -hmm. in whatever way is best for and and feels natural to you you know yeah. and uh, well let's read the next poem um too the next one we have is uh where i write from oh this is kind of a funny one 
I'm trying to be funny, I guess. You know, I being called the grief poet, I do hope I have moments that are more light um, in my poems. And, you know, even though this poem mentions death, um, I'm hoping it's, it, 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 isn't, it isn't a hard poem to read. Where I write from. From seasonal confusion, it's May with overnight freeze warnings these last three days. The sky sighs white. Squirrels hang upside down, and the air smells of cinnamon and burnt rubber. From under my desk, where the shadows speak spider, and a dozen pens have gone to die, there's a steady hum from the internet cable, like a hornet's nest, just before the storm of stings. From sleeplessness and dreams of exams I've not studied for, life comes with no official manual, does it? Or if so, can anyone tell me where to obtain a copy, preferably used? I'm a fan of margin notes and stains in the shape of swans that could either be tuna salad or PB&J. From dread, more test appointments looming ahead, from off the scale to undernourished. Medicine is an art, but there are no medical museums I would willingly visit. Give me a Rothko. A Van Gogh, they are the true apple a day. From transition, one address to the next, somewhere else my packages still won't arrive and the neighbors will operate heavy machinery at 5 a.m. From my next life, where there are ice cream shops on every street corner and the sky rains coffee. And guess what? I have that extra hand I've always needed. Wish you were here. Uh, that's great. Love that ending too. Uh, Where I write from um, another book, uh, a poem from uh, When All Else Fails by Lana Hechtman Ayers. And that poem, a, a prose poem um, with those prose blocks. And mm-hmm. it makes it brings up the craft topic, which, uh, you know, we'd love to hear more about your writing process. Um, already, maybe we'll start with this one. Uh, Paul Mitchell Bernstein asked how you decide that a poem is finished, which is always a good question. You know, you mentioned taking 20 years to write that last one. Um, you know, how do you know when you've got it where you want it? That's a really, really tough question. Um, uh, I can I can edit indefinitely if I don't stop myself. Um, th- there are two things that happen. I, I have a poem and I feel like it has some meat to it. I feel like it has some weight to it and I want to keep working on it. Or uh, there are poems that I've worked on you know, 10, 12, 15 times, and I realize they are never going to sing, and I just hit delete. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So, there, you know, I've deleted hundreds of my own poems from the from the computer because I just feel like I never, this is never going to say what I want it to say. I just have to start from scratch. But as far as being complete, that's really hard. It's really hard because I always feel like I can do better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think... I think if I get to a point and I, I write all my poems, almost exclusively write all my poems out loud. I talk them as I'm writing on the paper. And so if I get to a point when in editing where I talk through the poem and I don't want to scratch anything else out finally, then maybe it's done. Hmm. Um, but I know after my first book came out, um, I was reading through it and I, I just wanted to go and I can't remember which poet it was, but um, there is a poet I heard of who's gone. He would go to the bookstores and edit his books. 
Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do that. I felt like, oh, why did I let this go? It was too soon. Yeah, well, I uh, I feel the same way. And there's some poems that I wish I you know put in that I took out, and I was like, why did I take that? Out? <laughs> there's all these things we go through. Well, we we talked about the end of poems now, but uh, mm-hmm. let's go backwards. And, and how do poems begin? How do you know when you have something you know a fish on the line that you can reel in as a real poem? Well, most of my poems are inspired by other poems. Honestly, mm-hmm. I read poetry every day. I try to start my morning with reading a few poems. I read the rattle poem that comes into my inbox. Um, and most of those inspire me in some way. And I, I can sit down with a poem after having read it and just start writing. And that's really where it comes from. And the the other thing that inspires me, actually, you, we were going to talk about the Amherst method, is writing with others. So I feel there's an incredible... Um, force a creative force you know that we that we all share and when you're writing with others we're just tapping into that creative unconscious and we can play off of each other in a way that we don't write when we write alone um the amherst method is something that was started by patch night patch Schneider in massachusetts many years ago um and basically what it is is it assumes that everyone is a writer Nobody needs any special training. Everyone already has the gifts they need. And um, the method is to write to prompts, to have people in the group comment on what resonates, what stays with them, what they enjoy, and no critique whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And that's the method. And she started practicing this with women in prison. And something miraculous happened. After all these workshops, the women in prison decided to finish their get their high school diplomas. Many went off to college when they got out of prison. Some went to graduate school. They found when they had a voice and that their voice was listened to and that they were respected, that they became more respectful of themselves and they could do more in the world and feel they were good. They were forces for good. So these women's lives changed radically. And Pat Schneider said, well, why can't we all do this, you know, and it can make us all better. And so I trained in the Amherst method with Pat Schneider many years ago and attended Amherst method workshops and led Amherst method workshops. And I, I just feel like when I'm writing in a group with others, it's just, I, I, I have, I feel like I have their creative sources to draw upon as well. And what will sometimes happen, you know, you'll be writing to a prompt that's a poem or a prompt that's has something to do with, maybe the season of winter. And then there's, you know, there's 10 of us in the group and suddenly three of us have a fan whirring back and forth in our writing in mm-hmm. in a hot, steamy room. But we were, the prompt was winter. So how oh, did three wow. of us end up with a fan? <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, so I think there is really something to this collective unconscious that we're all drawing into. And the other thing is when you write with other people and you all respond to the same prompt with such unique voices, we learn from each other's craft how to make our own better. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, I, so many directions to go with that. I mean, there's so much healing power to poetry and, and making sense of the, the chaos of your life and how much you know comfort that gives. 
Um, mm-hmm. And also, I just love the idea that everybody is already a poet, because I definitely believe that. And you see that in the Young Poets Anthology that we do every year, where, you know, I mean, kids, yeah. you know, we, we learn language sort of through poetry, and then we become poets. And since language is like central to what we do as human beings, like we all end up being poets, because poetry is the way we like speak and remember and, um, and, and just engage with the world and make objects out of the nothingness and the randomness that's all around us. And uh, and so so the kids you find that that at age like eight or nine they're just great at poetry. I mean, there's no and then it's almost like we get a little self conscious, and um, and you know and sort of inhibit ourselves or try to fit along or do what we think people want to hear rather than express ourselves naturally. And so it almost feels like learning how to write again as an adult is like a peeling away of those layers that are just getting in the way, clogging up the system that was already already having us um, poets. Is, is there anything like that? I, I, it reminds me too of. Um, you know, teaching, coaching Little League or tennis or something, you you always reward the positive and that's how you get people to keep going and get better. It's not, not criticizing and say, oh, you have to get your elbow up and stand this way. It's like, oh, that part was good. You know, you swung well that way. And um, right. so there's a way that, that, you know, that positive feedback is empowering. So, so what's the process like as far as that, about getting the best poems out of people without, um, you know, without any criticism, you know, without any workshop? Because we kind of assume that sitting around and saying, oh, this line's a cliche is how poems come to be. And that's really not how it works at all. Well, you know, it's really fascinating because I've always been a workshop junkie. You know, I attended a writing workshop with uh, Oton Riccio at the Boston Center for Adult and for 12 years, and it was your typical critique workshop. And I learned tons about craft. And I stayed in that workshop for 12 years. Um, but he had this wonderful saying, which like, if if you knew, you, you know, and you would know, and we all knew our poems weren't working when he said this, wow, that's interesting. And it shows a lot of feeling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he didn't really critique so much as say that. And mm-hmm. when you know what said that, <laughs> that was the thing. But, but honestly, um, you know, having having been doing workshops in the Amherst method and having been in critique workshops, I can say that the writing improves leaps and bounds in an Amherst method workshop yeah. much more quickly than it does in a critique workshop. And I think it's because um, people can take any risks they want with the writing and try things they've never tried before and know they're not going to get slapped for it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is you really hear things about other people's craft that you like. And you think, I really like the way this person writes um, dialogue. Hey, I'm going to try some dialogue. And so you learn techniques just from being in a group of people. And because we're all so varied, we learn each other's strengths Mm -hmm. and we can improve that way. You know, and I I think it would probably work that way in any field. I think, you know, the kids at, at soccer or baseball can see what this kid is doing right and try to emulate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And and that's just a way to keep everything positive and moving forward instead of, you know, freezing and going backward. The other thing, I think I did one workshop because I, I did a workshop with Ellen Bass. I haven't done very many workshops. I think she uses the Amherst method because what she um, was creating was a sort of like a safe space where everybody could share any kind of emotional thing. And it became almost like a group psychology situation where there were like 10 of us in a room. We were like sharing our most personal and, you know, traumatic and, you know, stories. I decided to write a poem about like the most shameful thing I ever did or thought of. Um, and, uh, and so I wrote a poem about that that I've never shared anywhere else. But I felt free to share it at that workshop, which generated a whole bunch of stuff and got so much flowing as far as creativity goes. Is that aspect of it? Is it, is it sort of a psychological session almost to you? Like, what do you feel like, um, you know, is, the, is there like a healing path going on there intentionally at those workshops? 
I don't know if it is intentional, but I think it's definitely happening. I, def- mm-hmm. I definitely think that the that it's therapeutic because uh, we're just accepted for who we are, no matter what we say and write. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty therapeutic. That's that's pretty life enhancing to be accepted for who you are and what you've done, no matter what. Um, you know, I, I trained as a as a therapist as well. Uh-huh. Um, so I've done some I've done some counseling and yeah, it's it's definitely I think important in counseling. If, you know, if you want someone to heal, you have to accept who they are mm-hmm. and just help them be their best selves. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, let's uh, let's keep uh, the poems coming. I want to make sure we get through a couple more at least. But if anybody has any questions for Lana, um, leave them in the chat windows either on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll pass anything else along. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more, but let's hear another poem. Um, okay. Then we move on to Overtures, probably, which is a very different book, we should say. Uh, it in, is a in very sort different of style. Book. You know, the, When All Else Fails is a very you know, personal story type book um, moving through memory um, and, and history and things like that. And, and this is a much more, I don't know, how, how would you characterize this book, Overtures? Um, yeah, so When All Else Fails is more, it's just more narrative. It really is. Whereas Overtures is more lyrical, it's more philosophical. It's more examining the world and life in it than it is personal, although there are personal stories. And, you know, I feature as the main character in the poems. But, yeah, it is definitely more lyrical and philosophical. Well, do you want to start with um, the uh, I Still Don't Know uh, If God is a Storm or a Falcon or a Great Song? Great, great title in that poem, first of all. And that title is taken from uh, Rilke and, and his poem that was the last line of his poem um so that was my title i still don't know if god is a storm or a falcon or a great song the blank sheet of paper is warm beneath my fingers as if alive as my own skin that wants peace written upon it after weeks of worry weeks of worry to come calm is not sticky splinters even in good weather Rejections come flooding in as if from a failed dam. Who am I to ask who am I of anyone, of God, of editors? Walls wait quietly. Polished wood snores imperceptibly. My neighbors have gone out into the lightning storm to clear nettles as if they are a nuisance. I want to beg of you to brew tea to cure my flu of conscience. Who am I to crave joy? As war rages a continent away, children are poisoned from their own kitchen faucets in Flint, Michigan, and on native lands raped by pipelines. Fuck up, the voice of America in my head says, a Sousa march playing on loop in the background. I want to love well as Buddhists love all. Only this sheet of paper accepts my hobbled apology. Who I am is a hazard broken glass beware but look how i still shine yeah and that was another a poem from overtures the uh, most recent book from lana mm-hmm. heckman airs uh, i still don't know if god is a storm or a falcon or a great song after the rilke uh, poem and uh, so what about the actual like when you sit down to write you said you speak them out loud um what is the you know how do you find the the shape of a poem how do you find the line breaks and the the movement are you 
um, mimicking the sounds and trying to get that feel on the page, or is there something else to, to the line breaks? Um, you know, we had we saw one prose poem, and you know, so you see the difference between a prose poem and a and a lineated poem like that. So, what what is it for you that that how does the poem take its shape once you take it from that audio, that verbal that you're speaking out loud, and putting it on the page? Well, on the page, it, it looks little like what it's going to look like in the final product. I don't really have line breaks on my page. I kind of write uh, straight across in a notebook, in a plain notebook. Um, I don't find the shape of a poem till later, and I have to speak it out again and type it. Now, if, as I'm speaking and typing, it feels like I can figure out where I need to breathe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I, I can't really do with it. When it's initially coming out, it, it usually comes out in fits and starts. But in those in those starts, I don't want to stop to figure out line breaks. I just want to keep going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and one thing Sandra Eon points out, and this is what I was going to bring up next, actually, so it's perfect timing. Uh, but you do so much work as an editor. I mean, we mentioned the three uh, presses that you work on right now simultaneously. Um, so... So I'll phrase it like uh, Sandra says. She says, I'd love to hear her perspective on how being an editor influences her own work. Uh, and you publish such amazing work. Uh, your vision is evident. Um, and so, so, yeah, that's exactly the question I was going to ask. What is your, your relationship to editing in, in your own work? How, what do you take from it? Well, I feel like there are so many voices out there that need to be heard. And it's it's my privilege to be an editor and a publisher. It really is. I I feel like I'm giving back to poetry for what poetry gave to me, and I try. Although some of the people I published will not would not say so. I try to be as unintrusive an editor as I can be, um, and I I just try to really honor the person's voice each time. Um, and I, I do have a vision, and it's my vision. And I, luckily, it's varied. So I've published, you know, some experimental poets and some narrative poets and some lyrical poets and, uh, and every combination in between. Um, but mostly what I do is fall in love with the manuscript. And when I fall in love with the manuscript, that's, that's how I know to publish it. And it, it's an emotional response more than anything else. It's not, you know, being picky about semicolons or about whether the word is repeated too many times or whatever, you know, whatever people might want to edit. I just think I'm in love with this and this needs to go out in the world. Um, but there are poem, there are poets whose books I, I have more of a hand in because um, maybe they're not in the right order. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One thing I, I don't know that I'm a Libra Virgo on the line. So part of me likes ordering. <laughs> and, and so um it's really important to me that a poetry book invite you in from the first page, that you as a reader feel like you're you're being included. And sometimes um, poets don't start with a poem that makes the reader feel included. They start with a poem that appeared in their best journal instead of starting with an order that says, here I am, I want to share this journey with you. Mm -hmm. um, so I do sometimes reorder poems. That's what I do more than anything. Um, I will I will offer some minor edits from time to time, um, but I try to really respect each person's voice and let it shine for what it is. That's really important to me. Yeah, it's interesting to hear another editor because that's my perspective too. I hardly I, I keep like the lightest hand possible. Like if there's some you know line that's really off or a poem doesn't start in the right spot or or goes on longer than it should, and the ending you kind of blew past the ending is a common one. 
in the chapbooks, there's sometimes, um, even in Arthur's chapbook, there were a few poems that sort of took it on a, on a detour that we didn't have time for. And so I kind of pulled it back and said, hey, that should be in the full length book later. Um, so a few things like that, but not much. Uh, and it's because I feel like there's, um, there's sort of ways that the idiosyncrasies of a voice you know, add something. And it's not like there's this clean, like, this is the way to write a poem, or this is the way to say a sentence. Like, we always have this, the the variety in the way we encounter things um, adds so much to it that if you strip it away, you lose a lot, a lot more than you gain by making something kind of flawless, whatever that would even mean. And there's also a way that, that I mean, even in like, in like, um, you know, signals physics, there's a way that white noise in the background um, adds to a signal because they have something to push off of. And so there's, there's ways, um, you know, that, that to explain why that works, but it does. And so, you know, there's a way that having a little bit of noise, a little messiness makes the poetry more alive. Do you, is that your experience too? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think a poem can be edited to death and just taking the life out of it. Um, it, it hurts when that happens, when people... <laughs> When I, you know, and and that happens sometimes because of the Amherst method, you know, I'm there when the poem is born. And Mm -hmm. then when I see it later, I think, what did they do? (laughs) Why did they they take out all of the wonderful stuff? (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny, too. I mean, I have the experience a lot where I say, you know, the poems, you know, this sounds great, but this stanza feels so off. Like, it doesn't feel like it has the energy of the rest of the poem. And so often, um, the poet will write back and say, oh, that's the one that we workshopped, and I changed a bunch of things. And I say, oh, well, show me the original. (laughs) And the original, it has this sort of consistent life and energy. It's like, like you know, a poem is like a living, breathing thing. And, uh, and, you know, if you take away and you carve too much of it, there's not like the poem left anymore. And I think that's a real thing. So it's cool to hear another editor has the same perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I, you can definitely just kill your poems by over-editing them. Um, well, we have some more time. Um, let's see. Let's do, uh, let's do one more poem and then another question or two. And then one last poem, maybe we can finish out if you okay. don't mind, uh, okay. doing it that way. All right. Well, this is a poem I wrote uh, in memory of Philip Levine, a teacher I only studied with once. We had like a three-hour workshop, but he so impressed me with his, he was so down to earth and kind, but also really brilliant. He may be one of the most intelligent people I've ever met, and I don't think people knew that about Philip Levine. (laughs) Um, So when I wrote this poem, I also conflated him with another uh, writer who I just, you know, adore, which is Kurt Vonnegut who was also a pretty brilliant guy. Mm -hmm. So this is a poem uh, in memory of Philip Levine. A simple truth. I imagine Philip Levine time shifting in Tralfalmadorian fashion to 1936, where he is an angel on the shoulder, weeping as Lorca is tortured, then murdered. To Fresno State, his first year teaching, where on a lunch break, he sits with a student reciting Rethke. To one April in Detroit, the mud biblical, men milling, queued up for news of work that never arrives. Back to the mills, haunted as the men's eyes who labored there, understanding one human being is everyone. And how many more lives than the six million hearts stopped by Hitler does he daily visit with his words? Grass, boats, dust, wind, the darkening skies, two sons, a brother, the loves declared, unnamed desires that were answered, not by their aims, but by the simple truths, small red potatoes, melting butter, salt. 
The book is open to the first page yesterday. Tomorrow is always the 14th of February. And today it is 1941, five minutes to 8 a.m., sweet Phil, Billy Pilgrim. This day never ends. Yes, oh yes, it is enough to say what you can. The gift of transcribing ordinary suffering into extraordinary joy. Your name hangs in the brilliant morning air, a feather, eyelid of a magpie closed. Yeah, another beautiful poem from Overtures that was a simple truth in memory of Philip Levine. And um, uh, you mentioned writing a lot of after poems. Um, what do you think goes into a good after poem? Um, you know, how do you, how do you make it more than, um, you know, a, a restatement of what the poet said, you know, because that's, I guess, the danger that you admire poems so much that you sort of repeat it. So what do you do? Like, like why, what, what makes you want to write a poem um, after another poem? And then how does it, how does it function as a, as a good poem? Well, I think what makes me want to write a poem after a poem is just that that poem has achieved some epiphany that I've been searching for my whole life. Um, and I, I want to get to my own epiphany. I want to find my own epiphany that speaks to that poem in some way, but also is really my own journey there. And I think in order to be a good after poem, it really has to... Um, just take off in a direction that's very precisely personal rather than, um, you know, staying with the original poet's uh, message. I think you have to have your own message. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, to, to close it out, um, what do you think, uh, you know, you have this other book forthcoming too. Uh, what, what's the perspective? Where are you going next with your books? Uh, you know, you've, you've delved into this autobiographical realm and then this, uh, this different sort of tact with overtures. Uh, what are you working on now? Um, well, so the next book is kind of more about how beauty in the world can save us. And, you know, in terms of the natural world, art, poetry, music. So it's, it's more about beauty um despite all the troubles there are hmm. and that we humans can create beauty as much as we can create destruction so that's kind of the message i think of the autobiography of rain or at least i hope it is and mm -hmm. will be and i'm actually working on this sounds awful because here i am the grief poet i'm actually now working on poems about death <laughs> and um different ways of thinking about death and connecting to death and coming to terms with death. Um, you know, as I'm aging, I'm losing more and more people as we all do. And that's just a fact of aging. And also thinking about the death of, of, you know, our, our earth and what, what we're losing here. So that's kind of what the next, next book's going to be about. But I don't want it to be depressing. <laughs> yeah. Well, definitely. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, these are important topics that we don't talk about because they're depressing, but then we don't end up talking about them. We don't learn and we're, we're not ready for, for death, you know? So it's an important thing to be you know, talking about from every angle possible. Uh, I think it'd be good to close up maybe on Manhattan Island um, from Overtures. Mm -hmm. Do you want to do that poem last? Sure. So this was a poem originally in a chapbook that was an homage to T.S. Eliot's Four quartets. So this is Manhattan Island Five. It has an epigraph. Time is a storm in which we are all lost. William Carlos Williams. To investigate the universe, converse with Aristotle, 
whose insistence on wholeness misled astronomers and mathematicians for centuries. Or go knock on the door of poor Copernicus, whose heliocentric system shook those robed ones in Rome to the core. Or have a face-to-face, -face, but do not race with Zeno, so keen on proving continuity of motion impossible. Be discreet if you should meet Goidel, for he'll talk your ear off about the fundamental incompleteness of any set. Let us not forget Newton, who may or may not have been snoozing under an apple tree when he came to understand that attraction and action operating over distance is the very stuff of gravity. Yet sadly, the mechanics of the universe may not be mechanical at all. When one examines the very small subatomic world, abandon all intuition ye who enter there. Nothing is logical or even predictable, though mankind's curiosity wishes it so and clings to the notion of certainty. But to apprehend the intersection of the macro with the micro, the infinite, infinitely large with the infinitesimally small, is a job for someone called to quantum physics. Not an occupation either, but obsession, wonder, and disbelief, and requiring an entire lifetime of surrender to the selfless pursuit of perhaps. For most of us, there is no way even to imagine Einstein's space-time to conceive the warpable weave of the cosmos or the duality of light, leaving as a wave, arriving as a particle. The wild world unseen, a firming gang of quirky quarks, a mass of massless bosons, a sextet of tasteful leptons. A writhing world we'll never see with our eyes at all, but can only theorize and hope. Only calculated guesses, tropes, followed by dispute and ponderous new guesses. In science, observation, experiment, careful measurement, and knowledge only go so far. The rest is imagination. Here, hypothesized dark matter suggests boundless mass. Here, space and time are reconciled as one. The void, no empty place, brims with potential energy so that nothingness itself is a source of something charged. And energy is matter in another state throughout time. For most of us, the universe will remain a sublime mystery. We are only defeated by not employing our creativity as well as our logic. Time is the fire, though none conceive the rate of its flow in which we all burn. Yeah, another great poem. Uh, yeah, science almost is a metaphor for poetry. And of course, uh, you know, at the end, all science is poetry, too. So beautiful uh, back and forth there. Manhattan Island Five. Lana, thanks so much for being a guest today. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you and sh looking deeply into your work. Um, a lot of resonance, too, with what we try to do here at Rattle. So it's really fun to get to know you better. Thanks for being a guest. Thank you so much. It's been such a privilege. Yeah, that was uh, Lana Hexman Ayers. And of course, Lana has uh, two books that are just out this year, When All Else Fails and Overtures. You can find all that on uh, Lana's website, which is Lana Ayers. That's L-A-N-A 
A-Y-E-R-S.com, LanaAyers.com. You can find this book and then the forthcoming book too, The Autobiography of Rain, um, forthcoming. So uh, do check all those out. Um, Lana does a whole bunch of things. I mean, of course, we mentioned Concrete Wolf Poetry Series, uh, Moonpath Press, World Enough Writers. She's got a, a daily news uh, email. Uh, so much going on with Lana. So check out more uh, if you would. We're going to take a quick break and go to our open line. So don't forget there's open lines too. Um, how the open lines works, uh, you can email your poem if you haven't submitted it to the uh, rattle. Uh, prompt poem of the month category you can email it right now to open lines that's open mic at rattle.com if you submitted it already through submittable uh, for consideration of this month's prompt poem of the month you can uh, i'll just pull it up there uh, but if not email it though to open mic that's open mic at rattle.com and then find the zoom link which i'm going to paste into the chat windows on youtube and facebook um, and join us over there on the zoom and we will uh, share whatever poems you like. There's a prompt every month, of course, or every week. But there's also, you can publish uh, or share poems about current events. You can share poems you've written recently, that you've published recently. Anything you'd like to share, it's open lines for the next hour or so. And I'll look to as many uh, poets as we can. And, uh, yeah, please free share, share some poems. I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, Katie Dozier, our prompt poem editor, is right here as well. And uh, we're going to be talking about prompt poems. And the prompt for this week was to... Let me get it on the screen. Uh, Lana had a lot of stuff for us to share, so i got to scroll way down. Hang on, hang on, hang on. There we go. This week's prompt was right here. It was to... There we go. It was to write a one-sentence poem that includes two truths and a lie. So that was the prompt. It was inspired, if you remember, by um, um, last week's guest, Elizabeth McMoon Tatenko. Her book, Various Lies, had some... It was all about various lies, as you would imagine. And then uh, also... um, um, she sent, um, edits one-sentence poems, and so we combine those, or Katie did, combine those <laughs> into a one-sentence poem that includes two truths and a lie. So here is my poem for this week, and this is uh, playing two truths and one lie with your father. It was like talking tautologies with a philosopher in an off-campus bar as the lights dimmed and the music dipped below the distant chatter of the patrons left scattered like balls on the table out back where he took you some nights to hustle for rent, to fake teach you to pool, the red of his face now the mark of a mark, as in lost but not gone, more hot than unhappy, down in his luck but not life, that's what he taught you, and the game's still unfinished, now that you notice the solids heavy on top and a beer on the railing gone flat, as in lacking fizz, not laid flat, like the mark who fell with a fist and sprawled on the floor, and you ran, the two of you, a father and son, he won't show how to shoot, only one of you laughing, and you'd know what it was he was trying to say after all of these years, if only you knew what was, was. So that is my prompt poem, um, playing two truths and one lie with your father. And I think there are some truths and lies in that story as well. So uh, a double twisty uh, use of the prompt there. What, so what do you have, Katie? I'll move the mic well, over. So first, can... I have to say I'm very impressed that that is one sentence and it makes me feel kind of embarrassed by how short my poem is. <laughs> well, first of all, come so a okay. okay. I'll come a little closer. Okay. All right. All right. So mine is aggression, which anybody who knows me probably thinks that means it's a poker poem. It has absolutely nothing to do with poker, though. So aggression. A convoy of quail sprint across the road, 
their eyes suddenly whole stones instead of pebbles, their feather crowns bobbling in the breeze, gray wing beats now speed up to the summit, how the gravel dust flutters as it falls, dandelion seeds, another spell that scatters by my stem just then, while the birds jump too high above the grit to see, at least for me, lay down amongst the other weeds. Yeah, excellent. You're twisting it around, using those uh, M dashes in the poem to get through uh, one sentence. So what was it like for you? What was your experience with that, writing a one-sentence poem? Was it was it more difficult? To me, I think the poem might have... I mean, I liked that it worked as one sentence, and maybe I'll keep it that way, but I think the poem might have worked better if I just let it be a few sentences, to be honest. So I don't know if the prompt helped. What do you think? I think I'm not allowed to complain about my own prompts, first of all. I will remember that. But I found it really challenging. It was very interesting. Interesting. And actually, one thing I did that I think helped was I changed it into the present tense, which gave it kind of more of a breathless feeling. And I realized also how much I rely on like varying my own sentence links when I'm normally writing a poem. So I thought it was a fun challenge. I also realized I think I lie more in poems than I was aware. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope everybody else enjoyed it as yeah, well. Very good. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what everybody else comes with. Of course, you don't have to have a prompt poem, uh, but whatever you'd like to share, feel free to share it. Now we'll just go in the order. We have, uh, oh, we have 16 poets so let's uh let's definitely do a one poem max um if you were debating between like one short poem or one long poem um you know to pick the shorter poem and we'll see uh, if we have time um um email the poem to me again at open mic at uh uh, open mic at rattle.com not a google doc because uh, i think it's a little too hard to share anyway here we go uh with carla schwartz up first hey carla hi hi uh what a great night so far and um, yeah, I did have two, my sentences are very short, but I'll just do one. And I will, I sent you a second version just recently, and that is called uh, Swim Ladder. Swim Ladder. Okay, let me, uh, oh, here we go, Swim Ladder. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And um, I have a note here that says, all poets are liars in search of truth, of the truth. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. And this poem contains at least two truths and one lie. Um, As if swimming twice around the house barge in P-Town Bay isn't enough, the sun slow baking our skin, the cool water repelling our fear of sharks. As if that isn't enough, the real trial begins when I reach the swim ladder. Its bottom rung, that should be rung, its bottom rung slathered with seaweed, slippery and decrepit with rust. That rung so high I'm forced to bend my knees more than naturally comfortable. While one of the rubber grips on the handle is missing, so that holding on for the haul up means digging my hand into the thin metal of it, and when I thrust with all the forward momentum I can muster until the pain of my knees and hand is so unbearable, I plunge back into the water with the realization that landing on the deck will take more than hope. Yeah, excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, uh, Carla. And it, it, it's a great example of any of the breathless feel that these poems uh, have. You know, when you're writing with one sentence, it, uh, it it sort of propels you forward and makes you sort of almost out of breath. So it almost is a, a good vehicle for um, anxious type poems, right? 
I agree. I agree. Um, and this one I felt worked as one sentence, uh, but I have in the past also written one sentence poems that I, after later revisions, decided, you know, what what's is one sentence isn't isn't the point of the poem. Mm -hmm. It's to write the good poem. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so I've done is. that as we well. We want to prompt you to write great poems, and that's uh, that's what really matters, not uh, not sticking to the to the task. So, right, excellent work, right. Carla. Glad. Thanks for joining. Thank us. you. Thank you so much. Take care. Yep. That was uh, Carla Schwartz with uh, Swim Ladder. And next up, let's go to uh, Dick Westheimer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How you doing? Good. I was taken a little off guard. I didn't get that little message. The host is asking you to unmute. So I had to take it upon myself to unmute without, <laughs> without your request. <laughs> So uh, yeah, so what have you got to share with us today? Um, I think e even though it's a little longer than my seventy-two word poets respond poem, I want to do the prompt poem because <laughs> it's a prompt poem. You guys have converted me into a prompt poet. Um, so I sent you um, hate, pain, love, sting. Yeah, and so uh, what? Uh, what was your experience writing uh, to this prompt? Was it difficult? Well, well I'm it... I'm used to writing long or varied length sentences, and um, you know, I have I have some sort of sense about how to slow those down and speed those up and stuff like that. So I um, I wanted to write sort of a slower paced one sentence poem, and and one of the reasons why I want to read it is because just to hear whether it holds together, whether the syntax um, and and the, um, yeah, whether the syntax holds together. But the, the other thing is I decided I was just going to get the lie out of the way and let the truths um, fall into place. So I just thought like, it's Blackberry season here. I thought, what is what is the one lie I can tell that everyone will know is a lie, and it's that I hate blackberries. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> and so that's how I that's how I started the poem, and then I had no no sense of where it was going to go from there. Mm -hmm. Well, it's really and, cool to hear you trying to slow it down, and it's I mean I see it ahead of time, and it's a long longer poem than we had, so it'd be cool you know not to have that breathless pace that that the first three poems were doing. Let, let's hear it. Okay. Hate, pain, love, sting. I hate blackberries. Now their ripening comes in the season when ground hornets venture in number from their nests. How the sweetest fruit is hidden among the fiercest thorns that no matter how aggressively I prune, they grow lank and aggressive like sentient whips in the hand of some god whose purpose is to remind me that at some point I must pay something I am unaccustomed to as I've lived milk-fed and fattened at the taking in of the capitalist teat, and the killing diseases have looked away as I've passed by. So yes, to get at those berries, right at the time they are ready to warm my chin with juice that's honeyed enough to charm those goddamn hornets from my any lures I set out for them, to get at those berries, I must be willing to bleed, to rend my garments like some biblical prophet when their god is blasphemed, like the Lord of Blackberries is when I take her name in vain and complain that I have to suffer so, work so hard at the harvest when it's the cane that gives more than I can ever offer, which makes it and me like lovers, I guess, the giving 
the pain, the fruit and its juices, the tears and the taking, the love and its making, the blossom and the bee. Yeah, excellent. Jake. That was great use of that form. And I think it, it sounded, you know, in a way it was hard to tell it was a one sentence poem, but then you look through, there's no, um, there's no, you know, tricks to, to cut through and make the sentence longer. It's really well done. I, I, excellent poem. Thanks, Dick. Yeah, thanks so much. Appreciate the prompt, Katie. Yep. <laughs> Take Bye. care. That was Dick Westheimer, of course, with uh, uh, Hate, Pain, Love, Sting. And uh, next we have, um, let's see, who's next in line? Oh, Audrey Friedman is next in line. Hi, Tim. Kate. Hey, Audrey. Yeah, good to see you. Good to see you. I mailed you two for the last week in this, but I'll just read this. Um, Two Truths and a Lie, The Weaving of a Myth. Uh, Well, it's tiny. You know, I mean, these are short. You can do both poems, Audrey. (laughs) Thank you, my friend. (laughs) This is a three-line poem for anybody who hasn't glanced at it yet. But yeah. (laughs) This, This is the minimalist side of me. Excellent. The Weaving of a Myth. I can't dance on a spider's web or spin yarn filament fine, but at least Arachne doesn't bite her worshippers. Oh, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that, Adi. That was great. Uh, the weaving of a myth. Uh, really interesting little little poem there. Okay, and the other one was the sonnet with a number in it mm-hmm. I missed last week. August chills. He reached under skirts, hidden by rows of tall, ripe corn. He spread her child thighs to show joys only grown women should know. Upon penetration, her cries were heard only by the golden ears, cloaked in silk and tight green husk. She kept the pain for over six years and still can smell the gardener's musk, secrets of flying from dying lips. Finally, she sheds the shame of abuse, how the old man's game was to trip young girls in fields. How obtuse this lady, chill and enigmatic, her life undoubtedly problematic. Oh, wow. Very hard hard painful poem thanks for sharing that a sonnet august chills audrey it's uh it's a challenge to take stories of those you know and try to put yourself in their place mm-hmm. telling their stories yeah definitely true very very difficult and, and excellent use of the sonnet form there thanks audrey thank you and that was audrey friedman with uh, august chills and uh the weaving of a myth and next we have uh, nate jacob Hey there. Hey, Nate. Good to see you. I uh, went ahead and I produced a not very good prompt poem for the week. <laughs> well, I bet you're wrong. Katie got me this time. <laughs> <laughs> I bet I bet you're wrong. And also, uh, no such thing. Maybe. No such thing. Yeah. yeah. So. No. no. But here we are. Uh, it's called The Laughing Hand of Fate. It is Two Truths and a Lie. Uh, most of my poems are several lies uh, pointing <laughs> pointing towards truth, but that's about as well as I do. Uh, the Laughing Hand of Fate. 
I was a young shooting star voted Mr. Personality by my high school class, given a rubber hand trophy, then sent off to war in Iraq, where the first IED took aim and laid claim to my other hand, saluting be damned for a man qualified only from then to work through the irony of career choices, I swear, at Target, forever in crosshairs of movers and shakers in the war zone of a retailing world. Oh, wow. That, the laughing hand of fate. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Nate. That's, thank you. <laughs> the, yeah, the laughing hand of fate by Nate Jacob. Uh, let's, let's go to Laura Berg. Hi. Hey, Hello. Laura. Yeah, good to see you. How are you doing tonight? Doing good. Um, this was fun to do this. Okay, well, here was my effort at one sentence. Grand buoy. Darling, our most fabulous lie, the grand buoy, and all the smaller lovely lies that keep us afloat. Once I tell you, you tell me, and some we just hold close. These little ducklings all have happy endings. When you eat my barley soup, read my poems. When I listen to your Sufi drums, let you pull me in the ocean. We kiss and linger, holding on for dear life. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Laura. That was Grand Bowie, right? I was trying to pull it up in time. And, uh, right, that was Grand Bowie? Grand Bowie. Excellent. Yeah, well, thanks so much for sharing that. Another great prompt poem. We, we're not going to ask anybody what the truth or the lie are. I think that's that's part of the uh, poetic license when you're doing a prompt like this, right? <laughs> I trust so. you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but thanks, Laura. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And next up, let's go to uh, Emily D. Hey, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing, Emily? It's nice to see the two of you together, two smiling faces like that. Yeah, it's nice to be in the same house where you could just say, hey, come on over and don't do the Zoom. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. Yeah. I appreciate that. And then I have no technical aspects. I just walk into a room, which is great for me also. <laughs> Excellent. So, so what, did you, uh, yeah, what did you have for us, Emily? I sent you two. One mm -hmm. of them, uh, I, I still can't decide. Do <laughs> Do, well, do you I see think you can, when they're tiny, you can do both. And, the, and oh. the, it's another, like, like it's not three lines, it's six, but they're short, so it's about the same. But uh, I counted. It's 20 words. 20 words. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's more than Audrey. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, All that's right. totally fine, though. So um, yeah, feel free <laughs> okay. to do both. It's okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> You're very gracious. This is called Lie, Truth, Truth, Any Order to Survive. The most honest woman I know hides a bottle of vodka under the kitchen sink behind the steel wool. Oh, that's really another another really moving poem in so few words. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Emily. All right. This next one <clears throat> has a lot of long sentences in it. So I kind of made a long sentence. Poem. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, title of this one is Leaving Aliquippa. In my yellow headband, red and black feathers. In Danny's brushed leather holster, a shiny silver cap gun. We played in the stingy shade of the ragged lilac as his young mother sweat at the stove with the baby on her hip 
We sat on the stoop of her kitchen and in the anachronistic time travel available only to four-year-olds, we were driving the old Studebaker to Ambridge, my love, Danny, and I with feathers and cap gun. I was at the wheel, gripping magic air tightly, executing wide and wild turns, heaving my little body left, then right, like NASCAR. Danny protested, I thought we were going to Ambridge. We are. You can't turn the wheel on the bridge, we'll crash. He was right. We'd been driving long enough to have reached the Ambridge Aliquippa Bridge. My first deep shame of not knowing, I ran off angry, unaware his mother, the baby, and he would soon cross that bridge and never come back. And now I'll walk straight on that bridge, its metal lattice girders like a lace collar laid over the shoulders of the Ohio that I touch and love for the feel of it, unlike a string of pearls around the neck not worn often. And here I'll drop from my hand a not too heavy stone, smooth and round, the stone I've been carrying on my palm, into waters that remember fires burying themselves with deep stabs into glossy black, black that escaped into the sky disguised as clouds, clouds that floated on any colored day over small white towboats that pushed our wealth heaped high on barges with a long bleat felt low that rumbled down the river and echoed up the hills, hills that carried the solitary call of freight trains tight against the river up to our bedroom windows as we lay in the summer nights anticipating and fighting sleep and pre-remembering our loves. I'll drop this stone from this bridge into this water and ask it to remember everything for me. Oh, that was a beautiful poem. I love so many lines, especially that uh, metal lace girders, like a, or metal lattice, like a lace uh, collar laid over the shoulders of the Ohio. Beautiful yeah. stuff there. And uh, another heartbreaking poem, too, that was um, Leaving Aliquippa um, from Emily DeFerrari. And then, of course, so we saw the other poem, too, which was uh, Lie, Truth, Truth, Any Order. So very interesting. Thanks for sharing both. Uh, that second one in particular, so many great lines, especially toward the end. Thanks for sharing those, Thanks. Emily. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, next up, it's uh, T.R. Paulson, uh, occasional guest. Nice to see you, T.R. Hey, there you got unmute. There you are. Hello. I think I was trying, like, we were both yeah. trying to unmute at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it worked. It's good to see you. Glad you're not working uh, this late at night. No, I'm on vacation, so. Ah, perfect. Okay. And, and I, the timing was perfect because... My poem that I'm going to share was prompted by a prompt from none other than Kelly Grace Thomas. Oh, well, that's perfect. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if I mentioned that Kelly Grace, yeah, she's on Radicast number 80 and uh, a great poet. Her book, uh, Boat Burned, was just wonderful. I, I still a copy up there on the on the, de- on the on the bookcase. That's the word. Um, so, uh, yeah. So what was the prompt that inspired this one? I don't remember. It's <laughs> <laughs> you know the source. Well, that's just as good, though. <laughs> the, the prompt, I mean, I remember, vaguely remember, and um, I pop into it. She and I are both students of uh, Kim Adonisio's, mm-hmm. so we're sort of peers, but I also pop into some of her classes just because I am a workshop 
junkie and a class junkie. And I, my least favorite part of writing, as a lot of people know, is the alone time. So I take way more classes and way more workshops than I even can keep up with just because I need the social interaction. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so great, yeah, it yeah. was. It was. In, I mean, she writes some great prompts. I really highly recommend um, signing, going to her website, and signing up for a newsletter. And you get a free prompt every time she sends a, a newsletter. But this one was actually in one of her classes, and so yeah, I was really um, relating to what Lana was talking about the relationships between poets, and you know, this poem that I'm going to read is about is a Mean Girls poem about a 13 year old. Hmm. mean girls type moment but it, the irony is that i read this poem and i it means something to me because it it represents the connect you know the poet friendship that i have with kelly hmm. so there's a lot of irony there i guess yeah that's great that's um great. and i'm grateful to one art for um giving it a home i need to throw that in they're a, they're a great journal yeah they really are i'm mark Danowski, great editor and uh, yeah. one art you can find one art of course at oneartpoetry.com and here's that TR's poem on the screen right now. Go ahead and go ahead whenever you're ready. Somewhere between seventh and eighth grade. I never liked the bone, the tin and tone of voice, the slap of silence, clamp of air when someone called out, it's for you. I can still hear the girl who best friended me, her voice soft as glitter, sweet as night falling to stars smothered beyond the fog. Her words, not quite a quiet whip, but a rope intended to tie like wire and air. She listed friends as unchecked squares on a multi-choice test. She multiplied her choices, any of the above. Even now, the phrase you rang, still used by my mother, replays like a song, stale with time. My friend said she'd chosen everyone except me. Oh, that was great, T.R. And, you know, my uh, my daughter is that exact age, um, you know, just entering eighth grade. And so I've kind of been reliving that whole experience through her because I kind of forgot what it was like to be that old. I mean, and uh, and that that really hits at home, too, because you can really relate uh, hearing her. Yeah, stories my niece, my niece as well, just turned 13. And and it's funny because I didn't have a lot of confidence in this poem when I when I submitted it, I you know, I just sort of threw it in with a batch of poems, and I actually thought it was the weakest poem of the batch, but it's the one they took. But then on social media, I got a lot of really good response to it. A lot of people related to it and stuff. So, I I mean, this is, this poem is definitely a lesson that and sometimes our poems, I guess, are better than we think they are. Well, that's definitely a great lesson. And, and definitely you just keep sending stuff out because you never know what's going to resonate with people and what's not. And uh, I think this is one clearly does. Thanks for sharing it. That was in one art, of course. Um by T.R. Paulson this summer between 7th and 8th grade. And, uh, of course, you can see it here at oneartpoetry.com. Uh, and they do a poem or two, Mark Janowski does, every day at oneartpoetry.com. So check out that website. It's always great to show um, other literary magazines. And uh, we have a great relationship with, with Mark, too, so it's fun to see that one in particular be shared. Uh, next up, let's go to Mike Bales. Good evening. Hello, Mike. Um, yeah, good to see you. Yeah, I took the very minimalist approach because <laughs> I guess fair. people kind of in a critique group kind of railed against me doing long run-on sentences, mm -hmm. except they liked that one poem I wrote for you where it was love and infection as a one-on sentence. They liked that. 
that I wrote for you. Uh-huh. Um, this is almost center-like, the poem Third in Maine that I sent to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About downtown Davenport, if you really look clo- look up closely at these old buildings in downtown Davenport. And there's another aspect of Davenport, too. So this is Third in Maine. Stone faces on brick buildings bear their age and speak as a lone figure wanders in shadows. Oh, I love that. That's another poem I can relate to. So we're going that, but, you know, the rust belty Western New York, a lot of uh, brick buildings and stone faces, you know, wishing they could still speak or something like that. Beautiful little poem. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Thanks. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, take care. So Mike Bales with uh, Third in Maine. And our next Paul uh, Mitchell Bernstein is here. Hey. Hey, Paul. Good to see you. Hey, you unmuted me. How'd you do that? I did. Yeah, it's magic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Uh, You're good. Yeah, you've answered that question like 20 times so far. It's all right. It's all right. It's good to to be friendly. Um, And it's great to see you again because, you know, a new new participant in the open lines, but you've been leaving great comments and uh, it's it's really nice to see you. So what do you have to share? Um, So I have a short uh, one sentence poem Mm -hmm. that, um, yeah, I wrote a few of them and... um, when I sat down to write, I was I was I was wishing that it was. Um, I just went blank. What is it? Two <laughs> truths right. and well, lies. Uh, I was wishing that it was two lies and a truth because truths are so much more difficult than lies. Um, but uh, yeah, so I wrote a couple of really sappy sort of roses are red poems that illustrated how lies um, are easier to spread than truths and sort of the the lie proved the two truths and it was like roses are red type of format and i thought it was very clever and for that reason decided not to submit it um because somebody said something about the clever poet or something like one of the um yeah so anyway i wrote this one and um i sort of wrote it as a list poem it could be read as a list poem or uh just as a single sentence Mm -hmm. it's called in mourning okay i went for a walk this morning on olive street where long and whimsical ribbons of willow and wisteria once hung along a span of sidewalk beside a church with seven stained glass saints i love that uh the way you have the ellipses on both sides that in the title and the end you know this continuation uh like the poem starts before and ends after um and you know just sort of popping into it I, i really like that thanks for sharing that paul yeah, thank you. Yep, take care. That was Paul Mitchell Bernstein with uh, In Mourning. And uh, Mark Grinier is next in line. Hey, Mark, are you there? Yes, I'm there. Just slow. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's good to see you. This is, a, this is a prompt poem that I just barely finished after the your, your session here has started. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so uh, hopefully it has some merit. Two truths and a lie and paint. I'm still editing it, as you can tell. Perfect. <laughs> the, the sun brought down into new mown fields. Monet's paint haystacks blaze like sun so bright. It makes this room look drab and mundane. Makes the natural world it depicts go brown, like a world without joyousness does. 
settling quietly into the ground like a mouse quietly hiding. Or perhaps in the looming dark, looking up at Van Gogh's starry night, spirals and swirls of light foreshadowing the images built by the Hubble in space, or by the new Jack Webb's constellation of hexagonal mirrors, peering so far back into time that galaxies are tiny blobs of red, red shifted away, out of time and space, back to the bursting of the Big Bang egg that created this darkness today. The iconic darkness of Munch's screen, staring out at me under an orange sky, under a bridge over troubled waters with its deathly figures looming behind that bald mannequin dressed in black, covering his ears as he tries not to hear his horrible screech streaming endlessly out of his dead, out of his dread and despair, blinding all to the light. Yeah, excellent poem. Thanks for sharing that, Mark. There, you can see how you know being forced to write long sentences makes that poem really come to life. Uh, there's so many great lines, and in, in the, the you know you expect a, po- a sentence just to be over, and then pushing it forward sort of pushes you in your in your poetry to go to a deeper place and, and dig deeper. It's really interesting to see this uh, in a lot of the poems uh, this week. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, thank you, Mike. Yeah, so Mark Grenier with uh, Two Truths and a Lie. Interesting, too, that the uh, starry night keeps coming up over and over again. Uh, it's funny. Katie and I wrote an essay that's coming out for, uh, um, it's going to be on, what's that place? On Lit Mag News. Yes. <laughs> it's, and uh, we mentioned Starry Night, and all of a sudden there's Starry Night yeah, in every we, poem we look at. And we at. saw Starry Night this year also, and took a <laughs> selfie with it, most importantly. We did. Yes, we did. Where was that? I don't remember. Los in, Angeles? In MoMA. In MoMA? That was in New York. Yeah. In New York? Okay. I don't even know. All right. You saw the real thing, actually? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We saw the real thing. We fought through the crowd to get you know, within 10 feet of it. <laughs> yeah, I've never a lot seen of selfie the real sticks. thing. Yeah. <laughs> poke your eye out. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Mark. That was a great poem. Uh, just, yeah, I loved a lot of the lines there. All right. Let's see what we have next. Uh, Rob Harris is next up. Hello. Hey, Rob. Great to see you. Thank you. I appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm great. Yeah, it's a great, great. night for poetry all around. Uh, what do you have to share? I think so. Well, uh, last week uh, I wrote a, a prompt poem and I mentioned uh, the passing of Jimmy Buffett. And I could have told you at that point you'd get a ton of Jimmy Buffett poets <laughs> because that's just the way he was. And uh, It really was. I didn't realize. I guess he had like an email list, right? I heard someone else say that he had an email list that had like hundreds of thousands of people to get messages from Jimmy. And it was like a really like personal, um, intimate kind of thing. I had no idea. That's And, uh, you know, the tributes coming in from his wife, from his children, from... People who were inspired by him, I, I would count myself among that group. Um, you had asked for a, a suggestion of a poem or two or a song of, or two of his to check out. I would give you uh, a song called Cowboy in the Jungle. It's my favorite Jimmy Buffett song. It's not one that most people would think of. Mm-hmm. But uh, I really like the message. I really like the story. And, and his uh, songs just created stories and fit a mood. And it's it's really it inspired me to write a poem for for this week. I hope you don't mind another Jimmy Buffett poem. Oh, definitely. Not at all. It was, you know, it's one of the things I loved having the open lines when we just had it as a show because we got to see, you know, so many poems about the same type of topics and everybody's different perspective on it. So it's really cool to hear another one. Thanks for sharing this, Rob. Let's hear it. Sure. It's called uh, Remember 324. Um 
proposed like this. Since Jimmy Buffett passed away, his New York Times obituary has required two corrections so far. But his first musical offering sold exactly 324 copies, and his second album's master tapes somehow disappeared before their release. Disappointments and failures are maybe the worst barometers of an artist's true potential. It might even be said that the harder someone falls, the higher they could rise if they keep plugging away. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, yeah, great lesson there. I, another more facts I didn't know. So very fascinating to learn about. I'm grateful if I put out an album and it only sold 324 copies, I'd be like, well, I'm going back to school or I'm finding something else to do with my life. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad he didn't take that approach and I'm glad he felt like he had, still had something to say. And um, I think we're all better off that he did. So um, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Great, great lesson for us all. And, and really, really inspiring. I had, I had no idea that, that Jimmy Buffett was this uh, meaningful to so many people. It's really been interesting. That's how I get to learn. It's a really a privileged uh, place to be, getting to learn about the world yeah. through poetry. But yeah, I had no idea. Well, I would suggest the, the more you find, the more you'll probably enjoy, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Well, thanks, Rob. Yeah, thank you. Yep, that was Rob Harris with Remember 324. Um, next in line, we have uh, Sandra Iannone, who's been on before, but not for a long time. It's great to see you again, Sandra. So great to see you, Tim. And what a great show tonight. Oh, my gosh. I've been looking forward to it all day, and it's lived up to its unbelievable billing in my head. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear it. <laughs> well, I... I wish that I had done the prompt because obviously look at what it's produced with people tonight. Incredible. But um, it is 9-11 and I woke up this morning. I'm, I just moved to the East Coast from the West Coast after 22 years and I'm living with my mom now. And um, uh, my dad passed away a year and a half ago and that kind of prompted the move and um so I read this poem to her this morning and I thought, oh, I'm coming to Rattlecast tonight. I knew I was going to be coming. I really wanted to hear the interview with Lana. And I thought, OK, I'll, I'll yeah, why not? Oh. Why not a 9-11 poem? It's mm -hmm. fine. Yeah, well, so. it is definitely for sure. Um, you have to read it. Uh, I can't open the file, but that's OK. Oh, OK. OK. Uh, Sorry so about we'll that. We'll just have to listen as you read, but I'm looking forward to it. OK. It's called... Rock, Scissors, Paper, the Anniversary Edition, September 11th, 2020. On the day that the planes torpedoed the sky and ash ticker taped the city until someone identified those zombied alive as inhaling the remains of the pulverized dead. On this anniversary of that day, fire plagues the West on top of a plague. Is today the apocalypse we always dream of never arriving? My father, betrayed by his own brain, thinks so. Earlier this morning, once again on a cell phone, he names everything madness, as he has managed to do for months, the dementia scaling the walls of his brain like floodwaters, and he's the most lucid of anybody I know. The sun, a round creamsicle lozenge, I would pull down from the sky and swallow, if not for knowing how it would burn, setting inside my throat and rendering me speechless. And if not September, I'd, I'd believe I was 
witness to an afternoon's delight of winter, the sky a light flowering of snow. Is this how the first blizzard recorded snuck up on us? That Crayola sun beckoning me to come play outside until I was drenched in hypothermic chill. Is this how water tricks one to drown? The trickster apocalypse playing everyone for the fool says so. Says, don't believe anyone you cannot taste. And so I'm left to remember her salt, her sweet, like I remember the mist before a downpour. Her hair's five alarm deluge all around me, my ability to see reduced to an afterthought of grace. This is how horror attends the masquerade ball, dressed as bliss, and why I returned to her week after weakening week as she became perfectly round, an undiscovered planet and a blown glass float all at the same unapproving time. And this sun now, a blazed gumdrop behind a curtain of September snow-crusted trees, glows strangest as night prepares to arrive, wearing no mask of snowflakes, no delusions of oncoming stars. Oh, that was a beautiful poem, a great one to not have the uh, the uh, visual for, because just closing your eyes and imagining all those images and great reading, too. Beautiful poem, Sandra. Thank you so much, Tim. Thanks, yeah. as always. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, that was Sandra Ianone with uh, Rock, Scissors, Paper. Uh, beautiful, beautiful poem. Thanks for sharing that. All right, and next up we have uh, Mary Lisa de Dominicius. Hi. Hey, Mary Lisa, good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see everybody. This is such a, a nice community. Yeah, it really is. I just love it. It's what I always hoped we would have, and, and we have it. You know, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said to me yesterday, well, I'll tell you, Peter Murphy said to me yesterday, you're the hardest working person he knows. The, the hardest working editor he knows. Well, he said, That's really nice of Peter. I mean, he's a great, you know, great, speaking of prompt poems, I mean, he's got that book, uh, More Prompts for the Delusional, and a yes, sequel, I think, too. And so he is the prompt king, uh, hardest working prompt uh, generator on the planet, that's for sure. And a great poet, too. You could check out his Rattlecast. I don't know when that was. I can't remember anymore. Like 50, maybe, I'd guess. <laughs> but uh, he's a great poet and uh, great to hear from him. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was nice. Um, so, okay. So should I just start? Yeah, go ahead. And, and this is a, there's a Murphy writing prompt that you included, too. So explain that what that is. Yeah. I wasn't sure if you wanted me to go over that. So, okay, so Friday we had the critique of the week. Mm -hmm. And Thursday and Friday, you and Katie were talking about shorter poems. Mm -hmm. You know, um, how a lot of people think, well, and I'm like the long poet queen. I'm like Dick. You know, give me a, tell me to write a five-page poem. Easy. <laughs> tell me to cut it down. That's a hard thing. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> so so your Friday prompt, right, was write a poem that in one sentence, that is in one sentence, and has it in it one truth and two lies. Um, oh, let me intercede myself here for a second. I do. I have like a five-page poem that has no punctuation, <laughs> and it's like it's like five thousand words. So, so this is yeah, this is really hard. Katie, it's like yours. It's short. So here was the Murphy writing prompt, and what I did was I combined them both. Write a poem or story that uses imagery of the sea or beach or some other natural landscape to revisit an important relationship from your past. Name the place and begin with a few lines of pure description. Use the five sentences, senses, excuse me, tell a secret, tell a lie, and never tell 
anyone which is which hmm. so you both wanted a lie and i was like okay i'm gonna get this down to one sentence <laughs> and it's it's amazing what a prompt will do too i'm sorry i don't want to take up too much time but it always amazes me because you know you'll have like an incident and you're brewing it over and you're ruminating and you're thinking about it and you can't write the poem and then somebody throws a prompt at you and you think you're writing about crickets and then bam you're writing about something else <laughs> and and it's the thing you wanted to write about like for a year so all right okay i'm gonna go okay it's called it's called this is fun <laughs> it's called drowned out i know katie agrees with me <laughs> i do agree with you it's true <laughs> okay drowned out she hates me because I remember Connecticut. The screaming sound of crickets falling from the sky at night. The mountainsides blooming with insect whistles. Their sirens so thick, so dense. There was barely space for anything else to make noise that year, except for when the ocean tried to eat my four-year-old brother, who I tried to rescue but couldn't because I and where was she when the sea silenced the crickets and the sea silenced the sound of my brother crying out for help, his mouth full of salt, his nose burning, his body bobbing like a tiny toy in the waves, like her toy. She said to me, here, watch this while I go. Oh, that's great. What a powerful ending, Mary Lisa. And, you know, it, it just does show you how the prompt poems work to bring out stuff. Like you were saying, like it just, you, when you, it's like they sneak up on you, like you're, let your guard down because, oh, I'm just writing a prompt <laughs> poem. a little prompt poem, so innocent. <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that so was excellent. True. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Thank Mary Lisa. It's always great to see you and, and excellent poem, too. You also, everybody. Okay. Yeah. Bye. All right. Take care. As a Mary Lisa Denominicious with a drowned out couple more people on the lines. We have Lisa Seidenberg, another poet who's been uh, on before, but not recently, I think. Hey, Lisa, how are you doing? No, this is my debut. I have this never been This is your debut? Oh, I guess I've seen you in the comments a lot. So there I you have, go. I have been following the critiques um, of the week for a few for a few weeks, um, but I've never had the nerve to go on the Rattlecast. Oh, so. well, I'm so, so glad. It shouldn't require any nerve. It's just fun. We're all just hanging out, <laughs> <laughs> sharing some poems. Yeah, that's when they say when you're about to skydive. Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, uh, I did the uh, the prompt, uh, the one line prompt, and I, I thought, well, I'm actually a big fan of Sparrow. Are you familiar with him? No, he does I'm not actually. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's wonderful, funny one line poems, and they're really one line. They're not one line that go on for five pages. No uh -huh. insult to anybody who did long <laughs> poems, uh -huh. and, and so I also took the prompt to do uh to to be less you know to do less is more mm -hmm. well, that's so, so who's the, the sparrow uh where would we find that because it's not something you can google so how would we uh i just um i actually just googled to see if he was on it's i mean google Spar poet sparrow he lives huh. up in woodstock he's uh uh i guess yeah i mean and i follow him on twitter and he posts poems almost every day like one-line poems and they're great they're political mm -hmm. and they're like usually like seven eight words Oh, that's really interesting. I'll have to look that up for sure. Oh, you could have him on. I mean, it might not take very long, but, <laughs> but he's good. He's very good. Um, so uh, do you, you have my poem? I do. Yeah, go ahead whenever you're ready. I go ahead? Yep. Okay. So th this is my prompt, um, the one line. Every day after school, I returned home and unlocked the door. That's the title. 
My lone key fit neatly in the empty hole. Oh, that's a beautiful one-line poem. I love that. That is so good to fit so much in one line with the title. Um, yeah, I love that, Lisa. And, and uh, you know, the idea of minimalism, too, uh, with, with a one-line poem is a direction no one's gone yet. So that's really cool to see. Um, I forgot, you know, since it's your first time, where are you calling from? I, ha- I usually ask people that. But... I'm in Connecticut. Connecticut. All right. Well, it's great. I, I related to the crickets in the last Connecticut <laughs> in the poem. <laughs> Perfect. Well, it's great to see you. I hope you, you know, now that you've been on, you see that it's not hard. You know, you join us again anytime uh, you'd like. Thank you. This was okay. fun. Yep. Thanks, Bye. Lisa. Bye. Yeah, that was uh, Lisa Seidenberg with Every Day After School, I Return Home and Unlock the Door. And then uh, it's, it's, it's tempting to read the, the one line again, but I won't. You have to go back at rewind <laughs> just to see the rest. Um, next, we have uh, George Odd Writings with us. Uh, it's good to see George, too. It's been a bit for George. He's in the uh, summer issue, of course, the NFT Poets with his uh, palindrome poems. What do you got for us today, George? Hey, Tim. Uh, hope everybody can hear me okay. Yeah, um, we can. We definitely okay. can. Yeah. So I, uh, I submitted uh, The Insanity Defense. Yes. And, and so do you have it there? Um, I'm going to have to pull it up so it's unsubmittable. Let me, uh, there's some, so a, a few ways that you might have submitted. I can't remember how you do it. This is George Pastana, of course, also known as Out of Writings, and it pops right up when I search for it. Okay, so I have it here. The Insanity okay. Defense, another another brevity. We get the brevity going yeah. on again, yeah. Okay, as long as, it, as long as you can see it, let me know when to start. Okay, let me uh, make sure it fits on the screen first. Okay, let's uh, go ahead whenever you're ready. Is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? Uh, well, philosophers will immediately recognize something about this, uh, but I'll go ahead and just read it. Okay, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Title is The Insanity Defense. The content of this sentence clause is false, even though its author, big surprise, only sometimes lies. <laughs> well, that is it's quite the, uh, the riddle you got for us there, George. <laughs> Very it's, good. Uh, so, yeah, well, so, you know, two, I think it was two lies and one truth or was it two truth and one lie it was two truth and one lie unless okay. that's a lie unless <laughs> that's a lie I, yeah definitely it got my head spinning <laughs> all right well george okay, it's always thanks yeah thanks george it's always a pleasure you're hearing from me and i so love your uh, your participation in the chat windows over the last several months it's been great to have you on all the time Right. Thank you. Thank yep. you very much. Yeah, thanks. There's George Pastana once again, also known as Odd Writings with the Insanity Defense. Um, and we have Bishwajit Mishra. Might be the last one. Yeah, I believe Bishwajit's last. Oops, I didn't mean to do that, though. Okay. <laughs> hey, Bishwajit, hey, how are you? Evening. Yeah, great to see you. Oh, good, thanks. Good evening, Katie and Tim. Good to see you guys. I'm, it's so interesting to... I'm a, generally at the end of writing longer than I would like to. <laughs> yeah. So... If I get a chance to write short poems, I really, I wish I could have more prompts like that. Whether it's good or not, I don't care. But <laughs> That's great. Yeah. You get tired of words, right? Sometimes you get too many words. <laughs> so uh, which, okay. which poem is this, Bishop Jet? It's, it's September. Okay, I'll pull it up. <laughs> okay, anything you want to say about it before you read? Yeah, they definitely got two truths and one lie and more untruths. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was not sure I was going to write this or something like that because I had something come up. I had to travel it, but I was I took a walk and sat by a pond and whatever I saw, I wrote. I just twisted a little bit and it fitted into one one sentence poem. 
Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't have to make it work that way. It, it just was one sentence. You can see it. Okay. <laughs> On a breezy September afternoon, the sun is shaken, is moist, is left with just an afterglow like a ball deodorant stick. While trees and a lone bee hold their ground, even clouds show their permanence. But the pond keeps holding it as walkers and cars pass by. Fall is gravitational, needs no preparation. Waiting, maybe. Oh, that's excellent. I love that addition at the end, that waiting maybe works really well. And you see, (laughs) you know, in one sentence, you still have to have a progression of some kind in a poem. That's a good example of of how you got that to work. Thanks for sharing that, (laughs) Mr. That's great. Yeah, thank you. And obviously, the lie, you can see the cloud shows their permanence. That is the biggest lie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, there it is. Yep. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Mr. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. Bye. That's Bishwajit Mishra with September. We do have one more poet, actually. Um, P.L.A. Hay. I'm sorry. I got confused with P.M.B. So the, the P starting acronym thing threw me off a little bit, but we have you now. How are you doing? Hey, guys. I'm so excited to see Katie and Tim. I follow you guys, and I'm just so excited. Um, I do um, have one quick liner uh-huh. uh, or one sentence. It's called Time Waster. Okay. Yeah. And, and this, is, uh, this is Paul... Uh, Paul Lawrence Adino. That's what PLA yeah, stands for. Yeah, yes. great, great. And where are you calling from, Paul? Before I, said, I always ask first-time callers that. Where are you calling from? Yeah, I'm calling from uh, Stockbridge, Georgia, which is outside of Atlanta. Oh, great. Well, it's always cool to see, you know, where where people are. Uh, it, it's really fun to know that the Rattlecast is bouncing around all over different states and countries. So uh, wh- oh, what do you got for us? Love you guys. You guys are awesome. Oh, thanks. And I, your, your love for the poem, uh, for the poetry. Uh, community. Um, this one is called Time Waster. Okay. And it goes like this. My tears are falling on my shirt and hand, thinking longer as I stand here, contemplating the more my time is wasted. Oh, excellent. Yeah, very good. Time Waster. I love that. Thanks for sharing that, Paul. Yeah, thank you guys for allowing me to read it. Appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Appreciate hope you come on again. It's always good to see new faces uh, and uh, good to see you. Yeah, same here. Have yep. a great evening, guys. Yep, you too. Bye. Yeah, that was uh, Paul Lawrence Adino with Time Waster. And that is going to wrap up the open lines uh, right at a good time. So let's do, what do we do? We have to do the, uh, let's do the Saiku first. We'll do the Saiku and then we'll do the next week's prompt. That's how we'll do it. I haven't figured this this out yet for when we have uh, the guest editor. Well, I don't want to wait longer for the Saiku, so I vote for that anyway. Okay. Well, we'll do the Saiku this week. And the Saiku is based on this story from Yale, uh, Yale News. Where is love? Musical recognition crosses cultures with an exception. And, you know, as I can't help it, um, but point out some terrible science. <laughs> I just, it's just so many, I, like somebody took so much time to, to do this study. And so what they did is they, they took, let me see the numbers. Um, they, they had uh, 14 second snippets of, of four types of song. They played it to 5,000 people. They had, in 49 countries, 100 individuals. There's all this work. And what they found is that, where are the four categories now? There was uh, dance music. There was lullabies. And there was, like, supportive, like, healing-type music. Or there were love songs. And what they found is, if you don't know the language or the culture at all, 
um, you can identify the dance music and you can identify the, the you know, healing and you can identify the lullabies, but you can't tell what's a love song or not. But those are completely different categories of song. It's like, <laughs> it's like, like one's a topic and the other are like actual styles. I mean, it makes no sense. So of course that's the one that, that doesn't fit. Like, well, I, I, oh. anyway, that was a study. And it's interesting though, to hear, um, you know, music from completely different cultures that you have no connection to. They have a little quiz if you follow, find this link, and you can sort of play along, and it's really fun. Um, but of course, you can't tell what's a love song because some love songs are fast and happy, and some are sad and depressed, and it's like all different, and it's like a topic, and right. it's not like a genre where you're trying to get people moving with a beat or putting a baby to sleep. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, that's just the state, you know, people publish just to publish, but there's so much effort went into this. It's a beautiful thing, you know, they did in a way, but it makes no scientific sense. <laughs> so anyway, that is the, the study that uh, drew my eye this week. And the psyche is here. Naming the love song impossible. Naming the love song impossible. That is your psyche for the week. And that is the show for the week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Now, as we, uh, we're going to go on to... Or announce the prompt for next week, inspired by Lana Hexman Ayers. And what is it, Katie? I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put it on screen. That will be of help to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll put it on the screen right here, and you can say, and then I'll, like, reveal okay. it slowly. Okay. Write a sequel, a poem that refers to another poem and starts immediately after the events in that poem. Yeah, so that is a sequel. Write a sequel, which is a thing I think we might have just made up. So yeah. Lana, Lana loves um, after poems. And there's so many poems in, in both of these books that are after other poems. We saw a bunch today. But what we're going to do is instead of after, a sequel. And that is like, so the example that Katie had when she was talking about this to me um, from the other side of the room about an hour ago <laughs> was um, like if you were doing this, uh, Ginsburg's poem, uh, The Supermarket, what's it called? A Supermarket in California. And, yeah. yeah. So if you're doing A Supermarket in California, that poem ends and then whoever, the speaker like goes outside in the parking lot. And yeah. then, and so that's the sequel. Like start there and your poem starts with the same characters and the same, uh, you know, scene, the same environment, but, but the, finishes the poem like a sequel would right. to a movie. So I had it as Ginsburg forgot to buy ketchup, so he's walking back in, and then Whitman that he's walking with gets trapped in the in the automatic sliding doors. There you go. That so was the start to that, was the start. that was her sample poem. <laughs> so uh, so write a sequel, which is again a poem that refers to another poem and starts immediately after the events in that poem. So a, a sequel, maybe the first one ever. We'll see. Uh, that'll be your prompt for next week. And next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be. Penny Harder, and she's got three books too. I don't know what we're doing with these prolific poets lately, but Penny Harder has uh, three books that she sent me. Her most recent is Keeping Time, um, Hybin for the Journey, uh, which might be a good hint at what next week's prop could be. I don't know. But uh, but Penny Harder is just a great poet. Um, they're not all, all Hybin, but she's great in the uh, haiku community, um, does write a lot of Hybin, um, other books as well. Just a wonderful person. A lot of people know her already. Uh, that's Penny Harder, Rattlecast 211, with the prompt to write a sequel. And that's going to be Monday, September 18th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week. In the meantime, I'll talk to you later. And uh, we'll let Katie say goodbye, too. Uh, oh, goodbye, everybody. Thanks so much. It was so much fun. All right. Take care. Bye, everybody.